Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. And under the program, it's all vaccines, variant, and COVID-19. Also speaking with Christine Sorensen, head of the BCNU, to talk about the emotional toll the COVID-19 pandemic has had on nurses. And do you enjoy working from home? Most Canadians do now. Very interesting survey from Mario Canseco. Also tonight on the program, we are talking about the long-term care home and how one particular care home kept COVID-19 outside of its doors. And how do you get more sex in your relationship? I've got the tips for you. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. He's the host of the Super Awesome Science Show. So when I saw that the variant of the COVID virus had impacted the borders of our country, I thought of him to call first. That's Jason Tetro, and he's joining me on the line. Good evening, Jason. Oh, hello there. How are you? Very good, although uh, we have to replace the idea of the freshman 15 with the COVID-19, just so everyone knows that, yes, indeed, it happens to everybody out there. And I'm a microbiologist, immunologist, and I approve of that. (laughs) Well, you know, at least I said to a friend of mine that I went for a long walk with today, I said, hey, at least we all, we're in this together. We've all grown a little bit larger together. Oh, exactly. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing how we can reduce some of that belly fat. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's common sense. (laughs) But um, I'm, you know, we have to stop eating. Like we're all hanging around. We're sitting around a lot more. We're, you know, our offices are at home for many people. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we're not, as my my friend said, we used to go out. We used to get dressed. Like we used to, you know, try on 12 (laughs) different outfits. That took energy. That burned calories. (laughs) You know, and it's again, you know, the whole you again thing with, uh, you know, having less sex in a pandemic. And that, that took energy as well. And so <laughs> we used to stop at the mall on the way home, pick something up, running in and out. No more of that. Anyway, so we're all just like drowning in our sorrows and, and gaining weight collectively. Um, but we're not here to talk about that, uh, Jason. We're here to talk mm-hmm. about this, uh, the COVID. Is, there, is, there, is this conversation ever going to end about COVID-19? But now there's a variant that has come from the UK that many European countries have been concerned about. And um, apparently it's hit our, uh, our fine land. Yeah. And I mean, it was going to. Uh, it's, it's just one of those things where we have international travel and people from the UK are coming to um, our country. And sure enough, when that happens, um, there is the risk that someone is going to be, um, you know, exposed to and have the virus, may not even have symptoms, and then that will get spread to other people. So this is the type of thing that you expect to happen. I think We talked about this quite extensively in the beginning in February and March, um, but it really didn't get the attention that everybody really should have given it. And I think now that we've got the variant, we're going to be talking about the exact same thing we talked about nine months ago, but I think people are much more aware of what's going on. And so from that perspective, this idea of a variant coming to our soil, while not particularly that important when it comes to the overall COVID pandemic, is incredibly good because it's giving us even more reason to get back 
back to the ABCs of prevention um, so that we can stay safe. You know, these these folks, I gather there's a couple of cases in Ontario and one in British Columbia. Yeah. And one of the couples said that they, they weren't near anybody. They, did, they, weren't near, they didn't go near anyone who was sick. There was nobody that was symptomatic. Of course, that first lesson is lost because there is asymptomatic transmission. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and so they have no idea how they got that. But then they traveled over here before the bans were put in place in the UK. Um, this, it's my understanding that this particular variant of the COVID-19 virus is far more infectious than the COVID-19 original virus. Yeah, they're, they're saying somewhere between 54 and 70 percent more um, uh, efficient at being able to spread. And, and the reason for that happens to be that, you know, all living creatures evolve, they mutate. And when it comes to viruses, right, they need to be inside of a host. Um, now, depending on what that host happens to be, it's going to evolve or adapt so that it becomes easier for it to multiply itself, replicate itself within our bodies or, you know, whatever it may have been, a pangolin or, or a bat or whatever. And it's also going to uh, replicate so that it's going to develop a, the ability to transmit easier. So this is something that you always see. And this is also something that should not be a a surprise because this is what we deal with every single year with the flu. That's one of the reasons why, you know, we have to get a vaccine for the flu every year. Now, the only difference that really is occurring is that when you look at the variants that are coming out from this particular virus, the SARS-CoV-2, versus sort of the variants that we see with the flu, um, the variants are happening in areas that are not necessarily troublesome to the vaccines that we have, whereas with the flu, those variants will actually make our vaccines not as effective. So that's really the big story when it comes to these variants is that um, we shouldn't have any problem with respect to vaccination, and it should only give people more incentive to go get vaccinated. So that's interesting. So the vac- the vaccines that are available now, and there's a- another one that's come out from AstraZeneca that yeah. um, maybe will be approved soon, um, we hope, so that we can vaccinate more people um, in a shorter amount of time so mm-hmm. we can get back on with our lives. But this these vaccines will actually take care of this variant of COVID-19? Yeah, and and here's the really interesting thing. So, you know, everyone knows about the Pfizer vaccine, right? That was the first one that was approved and everything. Well, actually, it was version 2.0 of the Pfizer vaccine. Um, There was actually a version that came before it that only looked at a very, that only sort of recognized a very small piece of uh, the um, SARS-CoV-2 spike protein that everyone talks about. And the problem was is that it just wasn't all that efficient because any kind of variant that you saw could possibly prevent the vaccine from working. So they went back and instead of looking at a small piece of that uh, spike protein, they actually took the whole spike protein. And this thing is huge. And so as a result of that, the immune system gets to look at a number of different uh, options and possibilities to recognize the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And so when that happens, you get an immune response, 
even if you have these little variations or changes inside the protein itself. Very interesting. And I imagine more companies will be coming out with uh, more vaccines. Actually, believe it or not, um, all the, the top four. So you've got the, the Pfizer, the Moderna, uh, the AstraZeneca, Oxford, uh, and the Johnson Johnson. They all have done the exact same thing. They've got this um, what they call pre-fusion stabilized spike protein. And the reason is that you're giving the immune system an opportunity to not only remember one thing, but actually to remember a ton of things. So even if we do have variations occurring in the virus, it's not going to impact the effectiveness of the vaccine to any great extent. Sure, maybe a couple percent here and there, but nothing compared to what we see with the flu, where we may have in one year a 70% efficacy, and then like the very next year, that uh, vaccine may only be like 10 Effective. On the line is my guest, the super awesome science guy, host, host of the super awesome science show, Jason Tetro. Thanks for staying on the line, Jason. Hey, pleasure to stay with you. Uh, a couple of questions about the vaccine and this new variant. Mm-hmm. Um, this, uh, the, the vaccine, can it come fast enough? Can it be distributed quickly enough? I mean, are we looking at another year of this or are we looking at some of these companies actually getting approval for their versions of the vaccine and actually um, vaccinating people much more rapidly? Um, uh, The big problem that we had was the Pfizer vaccine required um, minus 80 storage, okay? That was a big problem. However, with the Moderna and all the others that are coming, um, do you like ice cream? Love it. I'm a a woman. Okay. Are you familiar with the ice cream cold chain logistics supply chain? (laughs) Yes, I am. Okay, good. Because that's how all the other vaccines are going to be shipped across. And since everybody can get ice cream anywhere you are in the entire world, you can get the vaccine. That's actually one of the reasons why um, we're at a point now where I'd say six to eight weeks from now, I would probably say around February 14th, Valentine's Day. It's a special day for me, my 50th birthday. And it's going to be probably the time where we're going to see that move from the second act of this pandemic timeline into the third, where we can not only see the end of the tunnel, but we can also start moving towards it. Now, granted, we're still going to be having to wear masks. We're still going to have to socially distance. We're not going to get back to normal. But I still think that it's going to get us on track to be able to call this pandemic over by around August to September uh, of 2021. Oh, very interesting. Now, now for people who are getting vaccinated, there has been some um, I, I've read some things that people, mm-hmm. there's no guarantee that they cannot, trend, it will protect them from getting COVID-19, mm-hmm. but it may not prevent, protect them from transmitting it to somebody else. Yeah. And, and this is normal with every single uh, virus that's out there, including measles. That's why we have to vaccinate everybody for measles, right? Mm-hmm. Because what ends up happening is you get exposed and while the virus is inside of you, it's still going to do a couple of replications. It's still going to grow, get a little bit of a viral load before your immune system goes, hey, stop that. Um, and so as a result, you still have the opportunity to be able to spread that to other people, even in an asymptomatic or presymptomatic stage. Um, and so that is one of the reasons why, until we have the majority of the population either vaccinated or have been infected so they have immunity, 
so it's around 60 to 70 percent is what we're estimating, then we have to maintain these hygienic measures to be absolutely sure that we're not going to start seeing an increase in cases. Now, everyone's heard about the R0 or RT value being above one. Well, that's one of the reasons why we want to make sure everyone has the vaccine, because that's going to drop it down not only below one, but but pretty much close to zero. Which is fantastic. Now, there's lots of hype on social media. It's a place you should stay away from when you have nothing else to do. Uh, But lots of people I noticed around the holidays have said, you know, why is it that people can go to malls and people can go to restaurants, even with their household, uh, yet I can't have my parent over or I can't have a sister over um, for Christmas dinner? So, or, you know, I can't go to the restaurant with friends. What's Mm -hmm. the difference there? Time. Uh, When you are coming into contact with individuals um, and you're going to be within their realm for, you know, many, many hours um, or even 15 minutes, um, the the, the fact is that unless you have, you know, a very, very large, wide open volumic space and you have lots of ventilation, the likelihood is is that anybody who happens to be uh, infected can spread that to everybody else in a very short period of time. And we've actually seen a case of that in Korea where literally a person was sitting underneath the output of uh, the air ventilation and was coughing and ended up giving it to someone who was something like 18 feet away. Um, Yeah, I know. It's kind of crazy in that sense. So the fact is that if you happen to be in a small enclosed environment, whether it be a house, a shack, a shed, or even a church, and there's no ventilation then that's going to be at a higher risk than, say, if you happen to be in a big, large shopping mall where there's tons and tons of air, volume, and movement. Um, And then, of course, if you're only coming within that six feet or or 10 feet of another person for a few seconds, like Mm -hmm. you are, say, in a mall or something like that, that's far less risky than if you happen to be sitting beside the people uh, or just being very close to them or like that 18 feet away from someone who's underneath an output shaft for a long period of time. Interesting. And should people who, it's been said, the, the provincial health officer of British Columbia has said, you know, to go out for a walk with a friend. Now, out in nature, should one mm-hmm. be wearing masks and staying six feet away and not talking to one another? It's, it's really a personal choice at that point because the air is going to be so dilute that the likelihood is that you're not going to have any chance for infection. Um, however, one thing that people happen to do is they do come into contact with other individuals. And if you don't know, then it's kind of like, mm, should I or shouldn't I? So the fact is that if you want to take it that extra step and have a mask, then that's fine. I was cross-country skiing the other day and you know the trails were just packed, so I had my mask on. Um, but by the same respect, the risk is significantly lower, so it may not be necessary. Right, absolutely. Well, Jason, once again, you've given us tremendous information. Thank you so much. We'll definitely get you back as this evolves, and it certainly will continue to do so, I'm sure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. How can people uh, watch your show? Uh, Actually, we're on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you get your streaming audio. Just look up the Super Awesome Science Show, S-A-S-S, and you can always find me on Twitter, at J-A-Tetro, and I'm happy to answer any questions. 
Nurses constitute the majority of healthcare providers on the front lines and have a critical function in healthcare systems. And their roles in treating patients with COVID-19 involve everything from triaging to detecting suspected cases with infections, providing essential treatment in emergencies, dealing with suspected patients with precautions, decontamination, coordination with other healthcare providers, managing multiple infections simultaneously, and dealing with families. And all of this takes its toll, both emotionally and physically. And joining me on the line is the president of the British Columbia Nurses Union, Christine Sorensen. Good evening, Christine. Good evening, Maureen. How are you this evening? Good. Doing well. Oh, that's healthy. That's great. (laughs) Count our blessings. Um, There are so many issues that face that nurses face uh, when caring for patients with COVID-19. Um, it's been extremely challenging. Perhaps they, uh, they've been the unsung heroes here um, and also uh, care aides as well. Um, people who are really on the front lines dealing directly with patient care, working in PPE if they're fortunate enough to do so. But all of this, is, this has gone on and on and on uh, now for months. What toll is this taking on nurses? Well, nurses are under a lot of stress. It's, it's been really extreme stress, I would say, for months. And, the, you know, they've been dealing with this pandemic for months now uh, since the first wave in early March and then through the second wave, which is continuing, and including the surgical renewal project from the government to catch up on all the surgeries that were postponed or cancelled. The long-term impact of having to endure sort of stressful working conditions for so long is really having an impact on the physical and mental health of many, many nurses across the province. And nurses are uh, leaving the profession. Some nurses are saying they don't want to work. I've heard anyway, saying they don't want to work in hospitals, that that it's a a gong show in there, that uh, they're lacking PPE, that um, the PPE has been locked up in managers' offices, that um, inappropriate patients have been brought into four-bed wards. Um, Are are these, uh, are you surprised by nurses looking to other uh, career choices or other ways to to deliver patient care? Well, I have to say that nurses are really committed to their patients, but I have to also say that the toll that this pandemic and the lack of access to personal protective equipment, the high risk that they have of contracting uh, COVID uh, in the workplace uh, is really taking a toll. Uh, nurses, you know, a national study that was released earlier this month by the University of Toronto showed that about 60% of nurses intended to leave their jobs within the next year, and more than a quarter of these nurses wanted to leave the profession altogether. So 60% wanted to find a different area of nursing where they didn't have to do whatever they were doing now, but 25% of them just wanted to leave. Uh, and I anticipate after we have got through this uh, second horrendous wave, and who knows what this new variant will do uh, as we come into the summer where maybe things are a little lighter. I think we'll see nurses, the adrenaline rush coming down and reflecting and thinking, what am I doing and how is this impacting me and my family? Uh, we're committed to providing care, but, but we really do need the support and we need to be valued by uh, the healthcare system for what we're doing. 
Absolutely. Um, You know, the word family is the operative word there, not only their own families, but dealing with families. I had a a heart-rendering email from a listener this evening about uh, her issues with her mother in a long-term care home and and how the nurses, um, how she felt, you know, had been keeping her out. And, and, you know, it's so difficult uh, to keep families away. We're we're often family-centered care. And, uh, And so that's an additional challenge, not to mention the high rate of nurses who have actually contracted COVID-19, but then the fear of of them bringing that home to their own families. Oftentimes, nurses uh, staying in a trailer on their driveway um, or isolating themselves from their young children or their older parents in order to prevent that transmission of infection. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we understand that uh, our elderly in long-term care are at the greatest risk uh, living in in enclosed space and with large numbers of people, we know that they're the greatest risk. You know, so we do want to do everything that we can to protect them. But we do know that, you know, 85% of our nurses are fearful, extremely fearful of contracting COVID in the workplace and bringing it home to their family and their friends. They're incredibly conscientious about making sure that they practice all infection control uh, procedures that they need to, to reduce the spread of the virus. But, you know, at this point, not every nurse does not have access to the personal protective equipment that they deem necessary to keep themselves and their patients safe. And so, you know, we have to look at other measures, uh, environmental control measures, such as keeping people away, um, or those restrictive measures that we are being asked to manage in the public to try to reduce the numbers of cases in this province to help reduce the spread. Of course. And and we're so focused on COVID-19, but oftentimes nurses are managing multiple infections at the same time or uh, thinking that or maybe thinking it's COVID-19 because it can present much like sepsis uh, can present uh, and, and actually realizing, you know, that there's a higher risk potentially of medical errors, which are the number three reason for um, death in this country and in, in North America um, next to cancer and heart disease, uh, which also puts additional pressure on nurses and, and mental strain. And, and many times nurses are the principal breadwinner in their family and especially in a pandemic when nurses can be working, uh, but oftentimes uh, maybe their partners or husbands or spouses or wives are not working. Um, so the strain just seems to add up and then throw on top of that homeschooling. <laughs> and you just think, how, how can uh, nurses withstand all of this pressure? You know, you're exactly right. You know, 93% of nurses are women, 7% are men, uh, both very committed to their patient care, but also to their families. And they are juggling uh, multiple responsibilities, elderly parents, whether they're living in residential long-term care or living on their own, uh, young children, they have all the same challenges that every one of us in the public has. Uh, Yet, they continue to care for your loved ones and mine as they go into our acute care system or our long-term care system. And they are there at the bedside uh, with our, our family and our loved ones when they're alone, because right now we do have to abide by the rules and there are no visitors. Um, but we want to make sure that, you know, people know that their their family and their loved ones are being cared for and nurses are with them. And unfortunately for some of them, right up until their very last moments. Uh, and we do that all because, you know, we really want to provide the best quality care that we can in this province. But we also need to take care of ourselves, our own mental health, our own physical health, uh, and we need to be supported to do so. 
Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing that I think the public maybe forgets is that it's not easy to work in full PPE, meaning you may have an uh, an N95 mask on or a KN95 mask, a shield um, or, or a surgical mask, gloves, a gown, booties, uh, you know, a, a covering for your hair um, to, you know, prevent transmission of infection. And that is changed uh, in between patients. It used to be that we changed it with each procedure <laughs> that we did on patients, but, you know, masks, because they're at a shortage, are actually being reused often for a day or a week by, by some nurses, unfortunately, because they have no other choice. But I think it's very, very difficult conditions uh, to work, especially for that length of time. Yeah, I hear from nurses all over the province that they have to ex- have extended use of personal protective equipment. Uh, some personal protective equipment, as you say, is reused, which is very unusual for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we do hear large numbers of personal protective equipment uh, being brought into the province, but it all has to go through testing. It has to be approved. And unfortunately, many nurses are just not seeing it transferred uh, to act being accessible uh, at point of care. Uh, and so what we are asking the government and health authorities is to be open and transparent about the actual status of the personal protective equipment for healthcare workers in this province and give nurses unfettered access to it so that they can keep themselves safe and they can care for others and keep them safe at the same time. I mean, it will actually decrease the burden on the healthcare system. So it actually is, it makes no sense that, uh, that nurses couldn't have unfettered access to PPE. Uh, absolutely, because when PPE access is limited, nurses the nurses' risk of getting sick increases. Uh, we already know that we have some of the highest rates around the world of healthcare workers' infections, uh, and that's that's a concern because if we have sick nurses, patient care will suffer. We already su- have we struggle in this province with a nursing shortage. We have the lowest number per capita nurses across Canada. Uh, And now we have nurses who aren't able to go to work because they've either been exposed to COVID uh, and are waiting their own test results uh, or they've contracted COVID and they can't return. And unfortunately, as we know, some people don't bounce back from this virus as quickly as we had hoped and some people are off for an extended period of time. Uh, So it's really important that, you know, the nurses have access to the equipment they need Uh, that we all follow the infection control measures that we can to help reduce the spread of this virus uh, so that we reduce the numbers of admissions into the healthcare system. That said, though, we want people who have other healthcare problems to not feel that they shouldn't come to the hospital. It is still important if you're having chest pain uh, or other shortness of breath or you've injured yourself or or you have questions about your own health that you still access health care, whether it's through an emergency department or your own uh, primary care provider. Absolutely. What would you say to a nurse who is suffering out there, the effects emotionally and and mentally and physically, the effects of working full-time and often overtime, um, who is worried and concerned uh, and exhausted, quite frankly? What what would you recommend for that nurse? Well, I would tell them that as as they're as their president, I'm here to support them and make sure that their message is getting out. As as a member of the public, I would say, I value you. I value the work that you do, but you need to make sure that you take care of yourself, uh, that you, if you can, you take some time to, to just 
take care of you, getting enough rest, eating well, getting enough sleep. Turn down some of those overtime shifts that you're asked multiple times a day to work um, because the system is so desperate. Um, because sometimes you just need to give yourself your own space to rest and recover. Uh, we need nurses strong and healthy, able to go back into the healthcare system to provide both that physical and emotional support that our patients need. Uh, we, we absolutely need our, our nurses to, uh, to take care of themselves. And I would say to the government uh, and the employers, value these people. They are committed to providing the best quality patient care in this province, but they need to be valued. Uh, and that, that, that we can look at it from a, a level of the personal protective equipment they have. We can look at investments in nursing to make sure that we have enough nurses now and into the future. Uh, so coming up with a good health human resource plan uh, to recruit and retain enough nurses for this province to take care of the patients, those are the things I would hope for uh, in 2021 and be able to say to the nurses, yes, it's coming. There is help coming. Well, thank you so much, Christine Sorensen, president of the BCNU, British Columbia Nurses Union. I really appreciate your being here. Glad to be here. Thanks, Marie. Joining me on the line, he's the president at Research Co., columnist at Business in Vancouver. He is Mario Canseco, and he's done some interesting research around working from home. Good evening, Mario. Good evening, Maureen. Great to be here with you. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. So uh, about 10 months ago, a lot of us were uh, told to go home and set up home offices and homeschool our kids and and do it all. (laughs) And we thought, how are we going to do this when we're working with our spouses? And 10 months later, how are we doing? Well, we're doing a lot better than we were at the start. You know, when we first asked about how Canadians felt about working from home, we had uh, roughly two-thirds who said, that they were hoping to do this again after the COVID-19 pandemic ended. So you still had a lot of residents of Canada who weren't really that keen on this idea. They were worried about distractions. They were worried about how they were going to be able to do their work from home. And now as we are nearing the end of the year and we continue under this COVID-19 pandemic, there's 80% who say, I like this. I want to continue doing this after this COVID-19 pandemic is over. So we started in April with somewhat of a cautious optimism about how things were going. And now we're in a situation where four out of five of us say, I want to stay home. I don't want to go back to the office. Well, I kind of like it myself. I mean, I do some work from home, uh, more than I did before. um, But I also, you know, some of my work takes me outside of the home. But I like the fact that sometimes I I don't drive for like five days. And so therefore I save uh, on gas. (laughs) Money. (laughs) Um, I like the fact that I literally uh, can roll out of bed and go on a Zoom call. And in fact, I I bought a sweater that I didn't like. And so I decided to turn it into pajamas (laughs) and I wore it to bed. And then I woke up and I rolled onto the Zoom call. (laughs) Nobody was the wiser. Uh, So it's it's quite convenient. Have a cup of coffee there. There's no stressful commute. Um, So there are some benefits to working from home that I don't think we realized early on. What are some of the other benefits? Well, one of the things that we see here is uh, there was a little bit of hesitation from Canadians about being able to do the work from home. I think you know, part of the situation, if you're not somebody who's used to working from home, uh, you maybe were fearing that the technology wasn't going to be there, that maybe your Wi-Fi at home wasn't going to be as good as the one you had at the office. And what we've seen over the past few months is those fears really disappearing when it comes to Canadians. They definitely feel that they can work from home, that their companies are equipping them with what they need in order to do this. Uh, but there's also a few things that are different now. You know, there's a, 
a specific group of uh, Canadians who miss the camaraderie of the office. They miss interacting with other people. 68% of those who are working from home right now say, I miss the office in that sense. Commuting, not so much. Only 47% who say, I miss my daily commute. It's a little bit higher in Quebec, so I think it has a lot to do with those places where you can get bagels and smoked meat because we don't have those numbers in the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. No, it is nice to you know be with colleagues when, when you are. Um, when you've, you know, I, I have a little, I feel like I have the best of both worlds because I'm working from home and I'm also working, I'm out in my clinical practices and, and other places when I need to be. Um, and so it is kind of nice to, to see the colleagues and to see other people, especially now that we're, our lives are a lot lonelier than they were before the pandemic. Well, it's definitely one of the issues that we see here, particularly when it comes to generations. I think there's definitely a situation where Uh, Generation X, baby boomers, they sort of got used to the idea of working from home a little bit earlier than the millennials. You know, we do see millennials who say that they're very distracted when they're at uh, working from home. There's many things to do around the house. Maybe there's something on television that is distracting you. And they're more likely to say, even though I like working from home, I think there's a lot of distractions here. And, you know, we thought it was maybe something that was related back in April to the fact that the school foreclosed. Maybe you were taking care of your kids at home. It's a little bit more complicated to concentrate on the tasks at, at, at hand. But at the end of the year, we still continue to see the same number of residents of Canada who say, I'm working from home and I'm easily distracted. But it tends to be more the younger population than the middle-aged or older ones. Interesting. Uh, do you think we're going to have difficulty when we're all sent back to the office? <laughs> Well, it's definitely one of the issues uh, that is uh, really going to make us rethink about uh, the way cities operate. You know, when you have a situation like this, you have so many people who say maybe once a week, twice a week, I'd like to work from home. You need to rethink the office spaces. And one of the things that we saw at the early stages of the pandemic was the rethinking of the office spaces because of the way in which we had to abide to social distancing guidelines. So maybe you had five or six people in a room, now you have two. Now you have to rethink, ignore, because you have a company that is still working, even though everybody's at home. And if you have a situation where people don't want to be back at the office, you're going to rethink those pieces. And there's all other uh, issues that uh, essentially revolve around the office. You know, where do you go for lunch? Where do you go for coffee? Uh, It's going to take a while to settle this, because a lot of Canadians are saying, I like what I have right now. And I'm not really interested in going back to the office Monday to Friday. That's right. And I would imagine that if um, companies didn't lease these spaces, they would save a lot of money, um, that they might look at that as well. And, and it's not my understanding that, produ- that productivity is the same, whether people are working from home or going into the office. Well, that is one of the things that is quite interesting here, because at the start of the pandemic, back in April, We didn't hear from a lot of Canadians who thought that their office was trusting what they were doing. And now we have a lot of situations now because of technology, because of all the meetings and all the deadlines and all the things that you need to meet. You know, this is working fine now. So it goes both ways. Employees and employers are saying to themselves, this is working out fine. Maybe I don't need to spend so much money for an office if people can be working from home. So true. Mario Canseco, thank you so much. columnist at Business in Vancouver and President at Research Co. Thanks for the information. We'll get you back as this evolves. Right now, I want to talk about uh, the pandemic and the impact that it has had on 
those of our loved ones who are living in long-term care homes across this country. Uh, they have been hardest hit uh, in large part because they live in close proximity. The ventilation is not necessarily as great as it is in homes where there's only one or two or three people living and and uh, also the access to uh, care providers who maybe worked at a multiple at multiple different locations or a multitude of, of locations um, thereby transmitting the virus. And so these uh, individuals have been hit really, really hard, and it's a huge worry and a big risk. Well, joining me on the line is the chief executive officer of Dr. Irving and Phyllis Snyder Campus for Jewish Seniors, which is comprised of the Louis, Louis Breyer Home and Hospital in the Weinberg Residence in Vancouver, British Columbia. He is Dr. David Kesselman. Good evening, Dr. Kesselman. Good evening. How are you this evening? I'm doing well. Thank you uh, for the opportunity and for inviting me uh, to your show. Well, I'm delighted to have you because this has been an issue all across Canada and North America, uh, those individuals living in long-term care homes. And and this is their home. And the home has almost become dangerous for uh, the many residents and and our loved ones who are living in them. Uh, What measures have you implemented to prevent the spread of the virus at Louis Breyer? How, How are things at Louis Breyer? How are things going? Um, so certainly, thanks. Uh, thank you, Maureen. Uh, good question. Um, it certainly is, un- you know, these are unprecedented times. As you indicated, uh, it's the seniors' home, and it's become dangerous. So no one expects this, and you really can't really say that you're prepared. Um, what I believe um, we have uh, done that may have been a little bit different, or what we have maybe a little bit different, we certainly started conversations. Uh, with regards to this pandemic, as the information started to 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 come through, um, as early as January, um, got together with the leadership team and started to talk about what's happening, the news that we've heard, and um, you know, uh, preparing a little bit from building on our experience from previous uh, pandemics or epidemics, those who who've had that experience, and trying to you know look at what needs to be done, what can be done, how can we prepare ourselves better certainly pulled out uh, our emergency preparedness and pandemic plan um, and really started to, to, to speak to our staff early on, just reminding everyone about what's on the news, exploring what they think, what they know. Um, what I do think um, gave us a bit of an advantage, um, if I look back, is the fact that uh, fortunately we have a foundation that um, was generous enough and stepped out of its regular role in terms of supporting equipment and, re- and, and different resources. Um, they're supporting two full-time positions, uh, a quality and risk position and an infection control p- uh, position. Um, and uh, those two positions or the individuals in the positions really did a, a great job at teaching, educating, supporting, auditing, collecting information, updating everyone with regards to infection control, with regards to best practices. Um, I believe that, you know, that as well was an important element that helped us um, fight the, you know, or, or, or you know, fight the, the, the infection or the epidemic pandemic to uh, to get into uh, the Louis Bryan minor president. You haven't um, had a big outbreak. You haven't had an outbreak at um, your... We had, a, we had a staff outbreak that was contained quite well. 
and I have to say as well, it's not only because of our own staff. Vancouver Coastal Health was incredible in in supporting us as well. But you're right, the the the, the outbreak was contained to staff and staff only, and um, none of our residents was affected negatively or impacted negatively. Yes. And speaking of staff, one of the issues that was discovered about long-term care homes is that care aides uh, who are often work uh, at a multitude of of places, um, in part because you mentioned a full-time position given to an infection control or, or two, um, but care aides are often not given full-time jobs, especially by private companies or home care companies in particular, mm-hmm. because they don't want to pay the benefits. It's less expensive for them. And, and they often will travel two hours to work for two hours at a, a person who's at home and then travel back by bus. Um, and so a lot of these care aides to make ends meet will work at different places and, and therefore right. the transmission um, is exponential or the potential for the transmission of this virus is exponential. How did you deal with that at uh, your facility? Well, we uh, early on in, in the pandemic, uh, we had the single side directive where individuals were only allowed or asked to, to choose if they worked in more than one facility, should they not have worked a full-time position, to choose a facility where they could only work in one place. So, you know, didn't or didn't have the ability or the choice, the right to, to work in more than one. Consequently to that, um, we... Um, increase their hours to full-time and even to 1.3 FTEs. So um, it did impact our ability to replace staff and to have a range of staff because we had casual individuals that, you know, uh, who, held, who held casual positions that were not able to come to work. But on the other hand, uh, those who chose to work at our organization and may have been part-time at the time got full-time hours. What has been the biggest challenge that you faced uh, at the Jewish at the campus for Jewish seniors uh, in the Louis Breyer home? Um, you know, I think the biggest the three three areas where I think we we really experienced a challenge from a resident's perspective, of course, is, is the inability to uh, physically connect with with family members. It was sort of abruptly uh, stopped, and of course, for their own safety. Um, we couldn't allow families in, and so we had to turn into other means to connect uh, between families and and, res- and residents. For our staff, you know, and it was mentioned earlier on on your show as well, um, staff would come in and had uh, you know anxieties and fears in terms of you know uh, how they come in and what, could they bring it in, take it home, uh, the whole infection control perspective. How would they manage it at home? What did they need to do? It was really stressful. Um, motivating staff and, and, and engaging them and keeping them grounded and, and feel safe enough to come to work was really, really challenging and important as well. And I, I also must say that from a leadership perspective, you know, we often forget the leaders that sit behind, you know, in the back offices trying to make th- make sure that things run smoothly, is, is really making sure that our leaders are out there motivating, role modeling, doing their best to support staff. Um, really... Altogether, trying to keep a sense of normalcy amidst this abnormal situation. Absolutely. I I heard a story uh, recently about somebody whose um, father arranged... 
a you know a Zoom meeting with his children and his um, his mother who was in a long term care home, and the kids were all on, and he was on, and his wife was on, and and his mother was on, and the mother was trying to understand the technology, and she was saying why is why is she outdoors? Of course, they were all in different places, and why are they inside? And 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 then she said, and who's that person in the corner? And he said, well, mom, that's you. And she said, oh, I wouldn't recognize her. And, you know, it made me think that, uh, you know, the care that is delivered by uh, care aides in long-term care homes, they often will wash somebody's face and um, very task-oriented, brush their hair, brush their teeth, do the activities of daily living for them. Um, oftentimes people don't look in a mirror for a long time and they don't even recognize themselves when they see them. How, how is it that you support the psychological needs of the people who live in the care home? It, it, it is absolutely an area that probably will require more research and attention going into the future. I think that um, what we do again we are fortunate to have resources provided to us by the foundation. Uh, we have chaplaincy and music therapy, uh, you know, other resources that other organizations may not have. But we also, you know, I also wanted to recognize we had a, uh, an HPRD lift a, a, a little while back and had the fortune of having additional recreational therapists and rehab and social work. So really um, try to do things differently, more one-on-one, um, programming more smaller groups, different kinds of activities, support groups to families and and residents. Um, try to try to be really creative and innovative in how and what we engage the residents with, and of course, trying to engage the families as much as possible is it, it, really challenging times. One has to think in a very different and innovative and creative way, um, and. Um, you know, those other resources and, and, and the recent list in HPD really proved to be very timely and very effective. Absolutely. Just a quick question out of intrigue. Are people in the long-term care homes wearing masks or are they wearing PPE as well? You mean the residents? The residents, yes. The residents aren't, no, they're, they're not wearing PPEs. Our staff are. Okay. Um, so that, that probably, I mean, I understand that it's not possible for everybody to wear uh, PPE all the time and very difficult, especially for patients with dementia um, or any it, one of the yeah. different types of dementia. Um, but it, it would be probably quite challenging, yes. Yes, yes. But it, it's probably another, just a bit of a contributing factor to um, coronavirus spread in in particular long-term care homes. Well, I really appreciate your time tonight, Dr. Kesselman. It's, it's been very informative and, uh, and I appreciate all your care. Um, what would you say to somebody out there who's listening, whose um, parent is in a long-term care home? I just wanted to let them know that their parents are not alone. I wanted to, to, to give them the confidence that we're looking after their parents and everyone else. And, and making a special effort to compensate for their inability and the barrier from them for them coming into the building. So it's hard. We know. We also have parents. We understand. And we're doing our best. Well, thank you so much. That's Dr. David Kesselman. He's the chief executive officer of Dr. Irving and Phyllis Snyder Campus for Jewish Seniors, which is comprised of the Louis Breyer Home and Hospital and the Weinberg Residence in Vancouver. 
thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.